Well, good morning. As Dan uh, mentioned in the welcome, we are back in the book of Esther this morning. And just by way of introduction, I hope you'll allow me to just share a little personal journey with you. Um, and John, that probably opened on the wrong slide there, but but it's appropriate nonetheless. So I was really thankful to spend last weekend at my niece's wedding in Utah. It was a beautiful wedding up in the mountains, and we got to see a lot of our family members there. And I also got to spend Father's Day with my stepdad. And it was really nice, especially since we have no family here in Illinois, um, no extended family anyway. They're mostly in California and Texas and, and Idaho. And I've often wondered, how did I get to Illinois? I mean, I grew up in Southern California, spent time in Austin where my wife was born. We lived for 13 years in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Climate-wise, those are three of the finest places in the whole country. And Chicago, not so much. <laughs> How did we get here? Well, on one level, I suppose I could say it was because of my job. In 1988, just a few years after Deborah and I were married, I took a position with the startup company in Albuquerque, and we moved there, and that company grew and became, over the years, part of a Fortune 500 company. And then in 2001, I was offered a position at corporate in Carroll Stream, and we moved to Chicagoland. So my job played a significant role in this, but as I look back, I can see there was much more going on behind the scenes. All the way back when I was 13 years old, I stood before my church and I said, I believe the Lord is going to one day lead me to be a pastor and follow in the footsteps of my stepdad. But it sure didn't happen the way I was thinking. But nonetheless, that's something God had placed on my heart all the way back then. No. Without going into all the details, my mother left my stepdad when I was 13 years old. I stayed with him over a year. We lived in the parsonage next to the church. The church was like my family. And a year later, the court said I either had to, I had to leave my stepfather and either go live with my mom again or with my biological father. And that was the single hardest thing I think I've ever had to do. I was so close to my stepdad. And so I made the difficult choice to move in with my biological father 200 miles away. He's a good man, but he didn't, wasn't following the Lord. And my life felt shattered. I felt like it was just falling apart. It was really a difficult time. Well, Again, my dad was a, a good man, but, and I still had this desire for vocational ministry, but I didn't have the same Christian mentoring that I once had. I ended up studying engineering in college and, and moving into the field of business, and my life just seemed to be going in another direction. Yet looking back, when I took the job in Albuquerque in 1988, Deborah and I also got plugged into an amazing Bible teaching church. And it was there that we really began to grow in our understanding of God's word. And when I transferred to Illinois in 2001, we got plugged into another church where I served as a deacon and I began teaching an adult Bible study for about 50 people every week. And that grew me in new ways and taught me a lot. And before we moved to Illinois, I remember sitting on an airline at the gate and I was writing a letter to Deborah and I said, I don't understand this. Nothing seems further than my natural will than to leave Albuquerque and move to Illinois. I mean, we have an awesome church. I've got a group of close friends. I just finished 13 years remodeling my own home. And I was not a big city guy. Nothing felt further from what I would think I'd be doing. But I wrote, I just can't get over the fact that I feel like the Lord is moving us to Illinois. And so we did move to Illinois. And again, 
I look back and I see how God worked in that. Well, the church I was with, it went through some serious doctrinal issues. Uh, and in 2007, we left and became part of Riverside Community Church. Little did I know that six years later, I would be asked to consider the role of lead pastor here. I had no idea. On the surface, it seemed like it was all about my job, and that's what was moving us around. But behind the scenes, I think God was orchestrating all of these things. He had us in just the right places at just the right time to prepare us in many ways for the role that we have right now. And his story certainly doesn't end with me. It's not even about me. My story intersects your stories, and it's just a small piece of what God is doing. Who knows what greater things God will do through many of you as we follow him. But this is what made it so special to spend last weekend with my stepdad. I just can't tell you how much that picture means to me. My stepdad is 85 years old now. He's been pastoring for probably 60 years. We got to sit and talk about ministry and God's work in our lives and about God's faithfulness through all the ups and downs. And man, there were a lot of hard times. But there were a lot of really good times too. And it was just a really special time together. And here's the thing. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He providentially works in our lives today just as he did in the events that are recorded in the book of Esther. We're going to see lots of up and downs in the account of Esther. Sometimes it seems like everything's falling apart. But it's not. It's falling into place because God is at work behind the scenes. And he's arranging his people and he's moving them around. And he's even using the evil things of the world to accomplish his good purpose. And so this is the thought behind the title of our series, On Purpose. Life may seem like it's a series of uncontrolled random events. But for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he's working all of these things together for our good and his glory. And so with these things in mind, the message this morning is titled, Dictating the Demise. And we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. We're going to be looking at three parts. First of all, we'll see the background in verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, the underground in verses 5 through 11. And third, the battleground in verses 12 through 15. So because this book is an historical narrative, it's important to view this chapter in its historical context. And so I apologize if some of this seems a little bit like a history lesson, but in order to understand what's happening in Esther chapter 3, we need to understand the greater historical context. So we'll look first at the background in verses 1 through 4. And verse 1 begins, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of the other nobles. Well, after these events, what events? Well, it's been a couple weeks. It's been a week, two weeks, since we were in Esther. So let's just go back and retrace what's happened up to this point. In chapter 1, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus in your translation, that's his Hebrew name, he's the king of Persia and he's presiding over this enormous territory from Kush, India to Kush, India to Egypt. And Xerxes decides to throw a six-month banquet for his military leaders, government officials, the nobles. It's a huge hurrah. But what it really is, is likely planning for the invasion of Greece, which would follow. But he has this big banquet, and then after that, he hosts a seven-day banquet for those presiding in the citadel of Susa, the palace. And in a drunken state, he summons Queen Vashti to come before him and his guests and parade around and display her beauty. Well, Vashti refuses. Xerxes, he was humiliated and furious, and so he deposed her. He took away her crown. And all of this, crazy as it seemed, was setting the stage for what would happen next. Then in chapter 2, it's four years later, Xerxes is back. His 
invasion of Greece was a dismal failure. He's back in Susa, and he remembers what had happened with Vashti, and he had no queen. And so his advisors suggested that they search the entire empire for beautiful young virgins, and they bring them all in, and then the one that pleases Xerxes the most could become the next queen. Of course, he loved this idea. And so they rounded up beautiful girls from all over the land, and Josephus said there were 400 of them. A lot of young girls turned from their homes. And we also learn in chapter 2 that there's a man named Mordecai living there in Susa. He's a Jew, and he's living with his cousin Hadassah, or she would go by her Persian name, Esther. And their Jewish ancestors were part of the group that was carried into exile by Babylon, which was conquered by Persia. So they're in exile. Esther was an orphan. Her mom and dad died at a young age. Mordecai adopted her and raised her as her own daughter, his own daughter. And she was beautiful. And she was one of the girls chosen by Xerxes' officials. So she was taken away from Mordecai and placed in the harem at the citadel of Susa. It seemed like both their lives were ruined. But Esther immediately gained the favor of Haggai, the eunuch, over the harem. It wasn't just her outward beauty, it was her inward beauty that those around her saw. And so Haggai gave her a special place in the harem and special food. And after 12 months of beauty treatments, it was her turn for her one night before the king, with the king. And Xerxes was so attracted to Esther more than any other woman, that he made her his queen. Now, meanwhile, Mordecai was working in the citadel. He could kind of keep an eye on Esther, and he just so happened to learn about a plot by a couple officials to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the plot was true, they were hanged, and Mordecai is credited with saving the king's life. So all of these things are what it's talking about when it says after these events. And on the surface, they seem to be just a bunch of uncontrolled, random events. Many of them were even evil. And I just want to say again, God didn't cause or condone the evil. But in his providence, he used it to place his people in just the right places at just the right time. So now back to verse 1. After these events... King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So now we're introduced to Haman, the Agagite. What's an Agagite? <laughs> well, it's a descendant of Agai, Agai, Agag, Agag, here we go, the former king of the Amalekites. And so, again, to understand what's going on, we need to retrace some of the history of King Agag, Agag and the Amalekites. It was almost 900 years before Esther that God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he was leading them to the promised land under Moses. And we know that is the Exodus, right? Well, along the way, a nation of people named the Amalekites attacked Israel unprovoked. They slaughtered a lot of the Israelites. The Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, who was a descendant of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob became Israel, Esau. It was a descendant of Esau. And these Amalekites were the sworn enemies of Israel. And it wasn't just a war with Israel. It was a war with God. Exodus chapter 17 says the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So they picked a fight with their own guy. 200 years later, though, in 1 Samuel 15, God gave this message to Saul, the first king of Israel. And he gave this message to Samuel the prophet. I'll read you some of 1 Samuel 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul went out and he attacked the Amalekites, but he took Agag alive, along with some of their sheep and cattle. 
And in 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Well, Saul goes out to track down, or rather Samuel goes out to track down Saul. He had been out at Mount Carmel where he was erecting a monument to himself. And when Samuel gets there, it says, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Well, notice how Saul rationalizes his disobedience. I'm just out of sync this morning, aren't I? I'm on mountain time. <laughs> one, one zone behind. Saul rationalizes his disobedience. We spared the best to sacrifice to the Lord. You ever done that? You ever rationalize your disobedience? Well, yeah, I cheated on my taxes, but if I get my business going, I'll be able to give to the Lord. And I'll be, you know, I'll be able. We can do that. Our sinful minds have that capacity. But the text in 1 Samuel 15 continues. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now Samuel had to put Agag to death himself because Saul didn't do it. And Samuel said to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Now, even though he put Agag to death, there were other descendants that, that remained. There was this remnant of the Amalekites, and they continued to brutalize Israel for centuries. One of those descendants is in our text, and it's a man named it's a man named Haman. And so, here's something to consider from this account of, of Saul and Agag. He couldn't see the downstream effects of his disobedience. But God could. Remember, God's omniscient. He can see everything. Saul can only see the here and now. And Saul wasn't holy like God. All of his thinking was corrupted by sin, just like ours is. We're redeemed, but we still have a sin nature. But Saul thought that his idea was better than God's. And so he disobeyed God. And so this is why we have to learn to obey God, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Because God alone knows all things, and he alone is holy. We should never second-guess God. We should obey him. So Xerxes, a pagan king, gives Haman, the Agagite, a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials, verse 2 says, at the king's gate knelt down and paid him honor, paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Now the king's gate... This was the entrance. It wasn't the gate to the city walls. It was the entrance to the citadel, the palace complex. And here's a, here's a picture of the ruins of the citadel of Susa. And again, this is a huge complex. It's more than 300 acres. And shaded in purple, that's the harem that we talked about last time, divided into two parts. And the palace itself, that huge palace with its 70-foot columns... It's tiny compared to this overall complex. We're only seeing half of it in this picture. And then way off to the side there, that's the king's gate. This is where the royal officials were kneeling down to Haman. Here's another picture of the king's gate. The structure was 130 feet by 100 feet with a moat and a causeway leading up to it. And the roof was supported by four columns that were 40 feet high. 
And so this is what it would look like as you're going through the gate towards the royal palace. Now remember, Susa is just one of four capital cities of the Persian Empire. And there's another city, Persepolis, where they also had a very similar citadel or palace. But Persepolis was much better preserved than Susa. And so here's a picture of the gate at Persepolis. Now, notice the people in the lower left corner, right there. It gives you an idea of how big this gate is. It isn't like a little garden thing. This was a, a very, you know, grand structure. You can see the stone carvings of animals, and it was amazing. So all the royal officials knelt down and paid honor to Haman at the king's gate, but Mordecai would not nail down and pay him honor. Now here's the thing. There's nothing in God's word that prohibits someone from paying honor or respect to a government official. There is not. We're not to worship them, but there's nothing wrong with paying them honor. Abraham bowed before the Hittites in Genesis 23.3. Joseph's brothers bowed before him and he allowed them to do it and on and on. So again, we're not to worship people, but there's nothing wrong with paying them honor. So, but what's going on here? Well, it's likely that Mordecai knew who Haman was. He knew he was an Agagite. He knew the history, and it was his personal integrity that kept him from bowing before Haman. It would be a little bit like you or I bowing before Hitler or Margaret Sangster. Would we do that, the founder of Planned Parenthood? It would, it would create a real... Um, conflict in our, in our conscience. So this was a matter of personal conscience for Mordecai. It wasn't a, a matter of God's, God's law. But it says in verse 3, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's commands? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman a they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Mordecai had told the, the royal officials that he was a Jew, probably as he was explaining why he had these convictions about kneeling before Haman. And Haman himself hadn't noticed Mordecai, but the officials did, and they let Haman know. So this is the background to what happens next. Let's look at the underground in verses 5 through 11. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Well, that seems like a bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? This man won't bow down to me. I'm going to kill his entire nation of people. Several hundred thousand of them, uh, historians estimate. Now, our former lead pastor, Walt Barrett, he had a really wise saying. He noted that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's Newton's third law. We know that. But then he said, so when the reaction greatly exceeds the action, there are other forces in play. I think that's really wise and really true. Have you ever asked someone a simple question and they like jump down your throat? They fly off at you and you're like, whoa, excuse me. What was that all about? Well, it probably wasn't about you. There were some other things going on in that person's life, that day or recently, there's other forces in play. Well, here, Haman has an enormous overreaction. And yes, there were other forces in play. He had a deep-seated hatred for the Jews, but there was also a, a large spiritual component to this. We've emphasized how God is this invisible force at work behind the scenes, arranging all of these things for our good and his glory. That's true. But there's also another force at work behind the scenes. It's the forces of evil. 
It's Satan. And his goal here is to wipe out all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, which includes Israel. So basically, to exterminate all of the Jews. Satan is the one behind Haman's overreaction. You could say that Satan was dictating the demise of the Jews through Haman and Xerxes. Now, you might ask, well, how can you be so sure that's what's happening? Maybe Haman is just this really nasty guy, and, and Satan had nothing to do with it. He's just an idiot. He's a mad? Well, here again, we need to look at the biblical context. We need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of mankind and descent. God pronounced this curse on Satan. He said in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman refers to Israel. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, the offspring is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so it says that you, Satan, will strike his heel, ouch, but he, the Messiah, will crush your head. In other words, Satan will injure the Messiah, but the Messiah will deal a deadly blow to Satan. And so from this point on, we see this relentless attempt by, by Satan to thwart the plan of God. God's plan was the salvation of all mankind. And Satan wants to stop that. And he wants to do it by ending the chain of people that would lead to the promised Messiah. Let me just take you through a few examples of where he was trying to do this. Beginning in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain slays Abel. And God banishes Cain. This is an attempt by Satan to put an end to the lineage, to the Messiah. But God gives Adam and Eve another son in Seth. Then there's Genesis chapter 6. The events leading up to the flood. It says the sons of God, referring most likely to fallen angels, demons, were intermarrying with human women. And the result was an offspring called the Nephilim. This seems to be another attempt by Satan to contaminate the entire human race. But God responded in two very drastic ways. He bound up these demons in everlasting chains. He didn't wait until the final judgment, you'll find in Jude 6 and 7. He locks them up. And then he hits the reset button on mankind in the flood of Noah, preserving only four men and their wives. Later, when God revealed that his plan would be carried out through Abraham and his descendants, we see Satan shift his attack from all mankind to Abraham's descendants, the Jews. In Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites were in Egypt. They're becoming more and more numerous, and it was seen as a threat to the Pharaoh. So he told the midwives that whenever a Hebrew baby boy is born, you must kill him. But one little baby got stuffed in a basket in the river, and was spared, and that little baby was Moses, and God raised him up to deliver the people out of Egypt. Later on, God reveals that the Messiah will come from the house of David, so Satan more specifically focuses his attack on David's line. And in 2 Chronicles 21, Jehoram succeeds his father, and the first thing he does is slay all of his brothers, all of the heirs, six in total, it was so evil, God carried out his judgment against Jehoram. He aroused the hostility of the Philistines and the Arabs. And they invaded and carried off all of the goods found in the palace together with Jehoram's sons and wives. Not a son was left to him, no heir, except Ahaziah, the youngest. And he became king at 22 years old. But Satan still had his hold on this family. And Ahaziah was just as evil as his father. And his mother, Athaliah, was, she even encouraged it. And when his wicked mother saw that Jehoram was dead, I'm sorry, that Ahaziah was dead, she took the throne herself. And what was the first thing she did? She proceeded to destroy all of the royal family of the house of Judah, 2 Chronicles 22.10. But a sister of Ahaziah took his infant son Joash 
and stowed him away in the temple for six years. He was the only survivor of the royal line. And at seven years old, he became the king of Israel and the lineage to the Messiah. Once again, God preserved the lineage of David to the Messiah. Well, then we come to Esther. And we here we see Haman and Xerxes issue this edict to completely destroy the Jews. But once again, God's working behind the scenes and he places his people in just the right places at just the right time. And he's going to deliver the nation through one man, Mordecai, and his adopted orphan daughter, Esther. Now, you see, at times, this lineage to the Messiah was down to just one man. But despite Satan's best attempts, the Messiah was born. Jesus was born. And so what does he do next? He stirs up Herod to kill all the baby boys under two years of age. Yet God preserved Jesus and his family by speaking to him in a dream and moving them to Egypt temporarily. Now you might say, I don't know, Paul, I think you're piecing some stuff together. Well, just read Revelation chapter 12. It highlights this whole scenario. The dragon, Satan, it says, stood that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And when that was unsuccessful, it says, the dragon was enraged at the woman, Israel, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who's that? The church. Yeah, he went from all mankind to Israel to David's line. None of that was successful. Now he turns toward the church. See, he can't stop. The, the Savior has come. He was born. He died. He rose again. Our salvation. He accomplished that. Satan is defeated. But in his defeat, he's still trying to, he still hates the Lord. And he still wants to destroy anything that God loves. And that includes you and me. Jesus said that the enemy, he comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life. So we go back into Esther then. You get the picture of kind of what's going on here? There's more than just a guy who's really mad. There's another force behind it who's animating this leader. And so in verse 7, it says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select the day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month of the month of Adar. They cast the lot to determine which month would be the most favorable for killing all of the Jews. Now, the Greek historian Herodotus also records outside the Bible that the Persians had this practice of casting lots to try to determine the future. And it's interesting. Even pagans believe that there's some higher power that can help them know the future. I heard about a frog that went to a fortune teller. Yeah. <laughs> And the fortune teller, as she gazed into the crystal ball, she said, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman. And from the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She'll be compelled to get close to you, and you'll fascinate her. And the frog got all excited, and he asked, where am I, at a singles club? She said, no, biology class. <laughs> Oh, snap. <laughs> People want to know the future, right? But here's the thing. They cast lots to determine the future. Now, this is a picture of an Assyrian lot. Again, Persia conquered Assyria, same territory. And it's cube-shaped like our modern-day our modern dice. And, and this was a common way to make decisions. But get this. Even for God's people in the Old Testament and slightly into the New Testament. Did you know that? God told Moses that the people should divide up the land in the promised land by casting lots. And that's exactly what Joshua did. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the Lord is 
behind this dice, this rolling of dice that seems so strange. The last mention of casting lots in the Bible is in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, verse 26. It's right before Pentecost. Now, once Pentecost, once the Spirit was given and we had the complete word of God, the casting of lots was no longer necessary to determine the will of God. We had his word, we had his spirit. And so it was no longer used. But even many of the pagans use this as a way to determine the will of God. And here, God is behind it. Verse 7 says, Haman cast a lot in the first month of Nisan, and the lot fell on the twelfth month of Adar. Now, this is an illustration, best I can put it together here, of the Jewish calendar on the inside and their months, surrounded by some climate information, and then the around the outside, you'll see our Gregorian calendar, so you can kind of get an idea of where these months are. Now, the lot that they cast, it, they did this, first of all, on the month of Nisan, in blue, and it landed on the month of Adar. Now, the nice thing about this, by God's providence, that would be 11 months into the future, almost a complete year. And so it gave some time here before this scheme would be carried out. So there's 11 months, and Haman still needs to get approval for this plan. But look at verse 8. It says, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, the first part of Haman's statement is true. There is a people scattered among the provinces and their customs are different. Notice he never divulged the name of the people. He just said, there's a people. He didn't tell them it's the Jews. But then he says, they do not obey the king's laws. Now, this part is not true. There's no indication of the Jews not obeying the laws of Persia. And so Haman's story was dangerous. It was a half-truth. And verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carried out this business. Well, Haman included a little incentive, a big incentive. It's a bribe. 10,000 talents of silver. That's equal to more than 300 tons. That's a lot of silver. Here's a, here's a picture of a bronze lion weight that was discovered in the city of Susa in 1901. Notice how the tail went forms a handle, and so these weights were used in a balance to measure out metals. This thing is about 21 inches long and 12 inches tall, and it weighs 266 pounds. But that's only four talents. Imagine 10,000 talents, not of bronze, but of silver. The value would be about two-thirds of the total revenue that the Persian government would take in in a year. It was a huge amount of money that he puts out there. Now, where was he going to get this? It wasn't going to come out of Haman's own coffers. He planned to get it from the plunder of the Jews, as we're going to see. So, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Well, in some ways, Xerxes was duped. He was foolish, but he was also duped. For all he knows, Haman's talking about a small group of people, maybe a handful, maybe 100, 200 people. He doesn't know who the people group is or how many of them there are. He just foolishly trusts Haman, and he gives him his signet ring, which was like his stamp, his seal. It's like giving him his signature and so it authorized Haman to do as he pleases. What Xerxes just did was sign the death warrant of hundreds of thousands of Jews. That's what's going on here. This is the underground. This is Satan 
and his evil forces working behind the scenes to thwart the plan of God, to destroy the Jews, the chosen people of Israel, and the lineage to the Messiah. That would thwart the whole God's whole plan for the salvation of mankind. So that's the underground. Let's look finally at the battleground. Verses 12 through 15. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote, in, they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own signet ring. Well, this is a, this is a big undertaking. The wording of this official edict had to be decided, and then they had to translate it into probably as many as 30 different languages. That's how many different people groups they had living in the territory. Remember, the Persian kings didn't force their conquered people to adopt their language. They let them keep their own language. They weren't like the Greeks that tried to Hellenize everybody. They said, no, you can keep your own language. And will they continuously communicated with them in their own language. Remember, we saw last time that Xerxes considered himself the king of all nations. He even had that engraved in a 70-foot cliff, a huge stone engraving where he called himself the king of all nations, or all languages is how it's translated. So here's an Assyrian stone relief showing officials dictating to scribes in different languages. What's cool here, the scribe on the right, he's writing in an alphabetical script, probably Aramaic, they think, using a quill, and he's writing on either papyrus or leather. You can see it folded over. The scribe to his left is writing in cuneiform script with the stylus on either a wax or clay tablet, probably clay. And so here you got a guy dictating to these scribes who are translating it into these various languages. And then this is a statue, a partial statue, of Xerxes' father, Darius. This statue was found at the king's gate that we looked at just a bit ago, in Susa. And it was found in 1972. Now, originally, it was 10 feet tall, but the upper third got broken off and lost, so now it's about 6 feet tall. And around the base of the statue are depictions of the various people groups within the empire. And their names are written in Egyptian. Just in this picture, you can see India, Maka. That's Bostonian for marker, Maka. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. Maka. Nubia, Libya, Egypt, Arabia, Assyria, Skudra. Again, there were likely 30 people groups in the kingdom. And then along the folds of the clothing on this statue are inscriptions that are written in many different languages. Now, if we didn't have these types of artifacts, the critics of the Bible would probably say that the ancient kings would have never supported all of these languages. It just shows you that the Bible's unreliable. Nobody would do that. Well, once again, the archaeology has demonstrated in incredible detail the historical accuracy of the Bible. Amen? It's, it's right there, written in stone. Well, verse 13 says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. I didn't have time to even look into what is the difference between destroying them, killing them, and annihilating them. Is that just hyperbole? Don't just kill them, destroy them, and annihilate them. I, I have no idea what they mean here, but it was pretty violent. And it says, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Well, what Haman did was to enlist all of the people groups in the entire empire, the entire, all these provinces, to wipe out the Jews on one single day. And historians have calculated that day was March 7th, 473 B.C., and so 
Haman would turn the entire empire into a battlefield, into a killing ground. We're going to see that happen. But what Xerxes didn't know is that he also signed the death warrant on his own queen, Esther. She was Jewish. And once enacted, a Persian law cannot be repealed. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 19. There's no going back. What's written is written. It's final. It's set in stone, quite literally. Now imagine all the Jewish people all over this entire empire, 3,300 miles across, from Egypt to India, and they're receiving word of this edict. And it says, on this date, probably then nine, ten months down the road, you're all going to die. All your kids, all your family. If you're Jewish, you die. It doesn't get any more bleak than that. I mean, their fate was sealed. Until the 20th century, it was probably hard to even imagine a ruler so hating the Jewish people that he would try to exterminate them. But then what happened in 1940s? Adolf Hitler... Adolf Hitler, he killed an estimated 6 million Jews. That's half the population of Chicagoland. It's an unimaginable horror. Yet long before that, some 2,400 years earlier, Haman and Xerxes dictated the demise of the Jewish people. Verse 15 says, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. We're kind of back where Haman, or where Xerxes started. They drank a lot of wine. He was intoxicated often, it seems. But the people are scratching their heads. They were bewildered. Why? Because they knew these Jewish people that lived amongst them. They knew they they were good citizens. They were law-abiding people. They had moral values. They probably helped the people they lived amongst. These these other Gentiles couldn't imagine such a harsh edict wiping out the entire nation. Imagine if our own government were to issue a decree for the extermination of all Christians. Think about that. Can you imagine? On November 3rd of this year, we're going to kill every Christian in the United States of America. Well, that's kind of how these people felt. They were marked. They were finished. But I guess what I wonder is, what would the unbelievers living around you think? Would they go, oh good, that was a a vile person? Or would they say, what in the world? This is a good man. This is a good woman. This was a great family. They loved the people around them. They served in their community. They brought meals. They loved their Lord and they loved other people around them. Would they be bewildered at such an edict if it happened today? I have to wonder. Well, as we wrap this up, the die has been cast, literally. And the irrevocable edict has been signed. It seems like everything is falling apart and everything is lost. There's no way out. You ever feel like that? This is done. I got the diagnosis. It's over. Whatever situation you find yourself in, do you ever feel like it's done? This is over. There's no way this is going to work out for anything good in my life. And yet, God, by his providence, uses these events to position his people in the right places at the right time to accomplish his good purpose. Now, I have to admit, it's really easy to look back and see God's goodness and his faithfulness and his plan. Especially when we're looking at it after the fact. See, we can, you might run home and just read the end of Esther and go, oh, it's okay, it all worked out. It's good. I'm sure you know how the book ends. It's easy to go, just hang in there, Jewish people. You're going to be delivered. You don't have to worry. Even in our own lives, I look back at my childhood and it's easy now for me to see God's goodness and his faithfulness and his plan for me. 
But what about right now? What about when you think about the things going on in your life right now? What about the things going on in our country right now? Are you still able to say with confidence, God is good and he's faithful and he's at work and he's using all of these things, even the evil things to accomplish his good purpose in my life and his glory. Can you say that? Do you rest easy at night knowing God is in control? Or do you say, what in the world, all is lost. See, that's the challenge as we go through this book. That's why I think this is so timely. Because we need to step outside of our own situation and look at how God works. He hasn't changed. He's the same in that day and today and always. He's the same God. So the Christian life is built on faith. And faith, Hebrews says, is being certain of what we cannot see. You can't see how all of this is going to work out, can you? I can't see it either. I, I like the saying, I may not know my future, but I know the one who holds my future. And he's a good, faithful God. He's a gracious and loving God. So this is the lesson that I hope we'll all learn, me too, as we continue to study in this book of Esther. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sing this, you are good. You alone are good and you alone are God. And you have not only the desire to do good, but the ability. You can work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, what do we have to fear? Really have nothing to fear, but if we're honest, we can relate to the man in the gospel who said, I believe, help my unbelief. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help settle this unrest in our soul when unexpected news comes up. When we listen to the news on TV or read the paper, the internet, God, help settle us. Help us to rest completely in you. Help our unbelief. Give us confidence, even in the midst of the most bleak circumstances. Confidence that you're good, God, and that you're in control. Help us to find that rest in you, Lord. We love you. And it's only because of Jesus that we can pray this. And so we do in his name. Amen.